Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to our podcast this week an old friend of history today, contributed on a number of occasions, Charles Spencer who has written an article for us in the uh, December 2020 edition called The Crown Lost at Sea. And Charles has written a new book, The White Ship, Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry I's Dream, which has been received with great acclaim. Now, Charles is best known as a historian uh, because of his interest rather like mine, in the civil wars and the mid-17th century. Uh, he wrote a book called Killers of the King, about chasing down the regicide, another one called To Catch a King, which was about Charles II's dramatic escape. And so, Charles, when I first saw that you were dealing with the white ship, I thought, well, he's gone a bit off-piste with this one. But, um, <laughs> but actually, when you look at the themes here of bitter division across a realm of the contingencies of death and ultimately civil war, although you're 500 years away, it's actually not that different in terms of themes that you've been dealing with in your books on the 17th century. I agree, Paul. Yes. And, 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 and thank you for having me on uh, today. But yes, absolutely right. I mean, what, one of the the themes of history that I'm keen on is this belief that we don't really change very much uh, as a species. We haven't very, really evolved very much now, I know, in the last 900 years, but I, I certainly was aware for the past 400. And yeah, the civil war and the the also or, uh, the themes you touched upon there, a, another one which is so overriding that um, you have to grapple with as somebody researching this period is the overweening position of God. Uh, God is, is setting the tone, whether you're in the, the, the Civil War of the 17th century or whether you are struggling to survive in the 12th. And um, yes, so the themes are very powerful. The self-interest dressed up as altruism is, is similar uh, when it comes to civil war. And um, the, the, the sides are, from the outside, remarkably similar uh, in, their, in their outlooks. What I mean is, you know, that if you look at the sort of Christian aspect of the the supporters of Charles I versus uh, the Cromwellian, the Puritans, uh, and beyond. They're, they're dealing in a sort of rather small niche of Christianity. And then back in this period, in the 12th century, you're, you're, you're stuck in a, a tiny little world about who has the rightful possession of the throne. And, and that is something that can be fought over to the death. And this podcast could not be 
better timed because the event on which the entire white ship, your book, turns, took place 900 years ago this week on the 25th of November, 1120. But before we get to that particular incident, uh, this tragedy, uh, something that you argue is perhaps the greatest tragedy ever to befall uh, an English ruler. And I, I think there's a very strong case that that's correct. I wonder if you could tell us something about the background to this, to go back to the eldest son of the conqueror, William Rufus and his reign, and some of the background to the events that eventually, that, that, that lead to the White Ship tragedy. Yes. Well, I think what I try and do when I write a book, um, a historical work, is to almost give a biographical tale of a king and then center on the flashpoint, the focus of his reign. And it's very important when doing that to give the background. And so, yes, the full title of the book, it, it really does make it clear that this is about much more than a catastrophe at sea. And so I like to hang the reader's hat on the, the conquest of 1066 and William taking over England, which he believed was his by right. And as you say, leaving England to his favorite son, William Rufus, who is an intriguing figure. I mean, a, a, clearly a bit of a rough soldier if we can encapsulate him in, 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 in a small phrase. Um, effective on the battlefield, not a diplomat, not an upholder of the law, which is a huge problem at this time. You know, all that people were really craving was a peaceful existence and respect for the church, he had none. Uh, and so we have a, a, another brother, Robert Curtos, who has been at war with William the Conqueror in the years leading up to the Conqueror's death. And he is reluctantly on the Conqueror's beth, uh, deathbed, he leaves Normandy to his eldest son as requested by the barons uh, in Normandy. And then there's a, a third son who is lost to history, really dies in a hunting accident. And, and then a fourth son is the one who is the backbone of my book, and that's Henry I. And what an impressive king he was. Not, not a particularly likable man, I'm sure. Absolutely hard-nosed would be uh, underplaying it, I think. But uh, a man who grew up in the shadow of his two elder brothers was left a pittance um, compared to them in terms of inheritance, you know, rather than getting some grand uh, kingdom or dukedom, he was given silver, a lot of silver, but still just money. And he had to make his own way and had a, a rather miserable time of it because the two elder brothers often at each other's throats, but when they weren't at each other's throats, they were taking advantage of Henry I and uh, either uh, stealing his land, which he did buy with his money, uh, or imprisoning him, or just treating him as a sort of third-rate skivvy, really. And he is on hand when William Rufus dies in his hunting accident, hunting an incredibly dangerous sport at this time. When you look back on this period, the number of uh, members of the royal family who, who were killed on, on the hunting field is quite extraordinary. And they were on the side too, weren't they? I mean, something like yes. a fifth of the kingdom was forest at this point. Unbelievable. So, yes, the Dukes of Normandy, when they got their teeth into England as this great prize, their, 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 their great thing they loved to do was to uh, go hunting. That was their favourite pastime. And of course, they had this huge new territory to play with. And whereas in Normandy, they had to respect ancient rights of the aristocracy to their land, they could do what they wanted. And what they wanted to do was hunt. 
And uh, yeah, it seems there wasn't much the health and safety around. I mean, the arrows are flying and, and, and one of the other conqueror's sons died uh, pinned between his saddle and the branch of a tree. Uh, anyway, I, it was a sort of uh, training ground for battle, I, I suspect, um, but it was a passion. And if you upset the Duke of Normandy or, or, or then Henry I, uh, you paid for it with life and limb. It was, uh, and also uh, it was terribly upsetting for animal lovers reading this book. Um, if you owned a dog near a hunting park, then they had to be uh, mutilated so they couldn't pursue the the, the stags or, or the boars. So yeah, they took it very seriously. And Henry, um, when uh, William dies in this accident, William Rufus dies in this accident, Henry, as you say, is very impressive in at least a medieval context, because he's utterly ruthless in his response, because he's actually in a very vulnerable position, even though he is the rightful heir to this. Uh, this is a dangerous game he's playing in that instant when his uh, elder brother dies. Yes, because actually William Rufus and the other brother, if I can call him that, Robert Curtos, Duke of Normandy, had made a pact that if either of them died without a legitimate son, the other one would get their uh, realm. And Robert Curtos, who, who's a man of sort of staggering mediocrity, really, uh, had done the one thing that was of great note in his life, uh, in, the, in the positive uh, column, and that was to prove himself a very able and brave general for the Crusader army the, on the First Crusade. And he was heading back from the First Crusade with enormous uh, luster to his name. Uh, when Henry I stole the crown. And we have uh, a year after the death of William Rufus, uh, Robert Curtos uh, essentially invades England to come and get the crown. And in 1101, when these two great armies are about to meet in Alton in Hampshire, that the, the invading army of Robert Curtos and the defending army of Henry I, um, the barons have a, a, a truce among themselves. They're not prepared to die for either cause. Um, and so the, the, the two protagonists are forced to reach a settlement. And that does give Henry the breathing space to build up uh, an effective system of governance, really. And he is really effective. This uh, is very is... good, isn't he? I mean, is there's something, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I make the claim that um, he's, he's an intellectual in some way. They might be pushing it. Yes. He, he, he is at least fairly literate um, for someone yes. of, his, uh, of his age and position. But he's also, I mean, his great innovation is the exchequer, of course. It's incredible, and really. centralising, um, the way in which he centralises the kingdom. He's very good. He realises that one of the key things, if he's going to have effective governance, is, is finance. And first, very, one of the very first things he does, actually, is insist on the quality of the coinage being maintained. And those who uh, don't take that seriously, effectively the mints, the, the mints of the country where the coins are forged and made, uh, they have to be uh, licensed. And if anyone is stupid enough to play with the silver content, they, they, they pay for it with their right hand and their genitals, which is a fairly clear message uh, uh, that you have to obey it. And then on top of that, you have this general concept of finances being responsibly uh, retrieved. And so, yes, you're right, the Exchequer is a, a court that is fiscal. Uh, it has a, a legal uh, component too. But basically, bottom line is the sheriffs in the shires have to produce twice a year. They have to produce the income and revenue that is due the crown. It could be from fines. It could be from 
any source, but they have to come and give it uh, in public. And then it is seen, counted. And I'm old enough, I, you're, I, I'm sure you're not poor, but I, I can remember the old system of coinage. And it's not easy uh, dealing in things, you know, when there's 12 pennies to the shilling and God knows what, I can't do the rest of it. But what they did was produce a sort of uh, massive checkerboard, which is where the name comes from, the exchequer, uh, on a cloth on a very large table with a rim around it. Uh, and on that, you could do the, whether it was a farthing up to a thousand pounds in terms of what was owing, it was shown with these sort of check, uh, sort of counters and what was paid. It's an abacus, essentially. Yes, exactly. It was a giant abacus. And then uh, some of these sheriffs, you've touched on it actually, uh, were not very literate at all, certainly not numerate. And they were given um, the, a large thing that looked like a, a long ruler to us. Uh, had indentations on both sides that were identical and that uh, symbolized what was missing and then that ruler was split down the middle and the sheriff was given it his half and told to get out get on with it and, and make good what he owed and so yeah it was a it worked you know there was no hiding place uh, it was quite clear what was missing and you had to provide it so yes that underpinned a foreign policy that was constantly aggressive or defensive, depending on, <laughs> main, mainly defensive. He, he wasn't looking for new lands. I, I think it's very interesting with Henry. He had this extraordinary wealth of England, but he really used it for maintaining those uh, borders of, of England itself, and also making sure that Normandy remained his, because there are a lot of people, including the French and the Angevins and um, the Flemish, who, who were quite keen for the two to be uh, unhooked. And he, he also had an eye for talents. We were talking about parallels with other ages. Um, but in his appointment of people like Roger of Salisbury, I was reminded of that, of the way in which Henry VIII appointed clever but relatively low-born figures like Wolsey and Thomas Cromwell at that point, that he had these very talented people around him who'd come from nothing, who weren't part of uh, the aristocracy as that. Very clever to do that. It was a way of getting around these, what, what the old cliche in history was over mighty aristocrats really. So um, it was the, a way of, you're quite right. I mean, one of the contemporary chroniclers said he raised men from the dust. Now, what do you get if you raise a man from the dust? A, there's no odd alliances to other noble houses that might be problematic. There's no arrogance of uh, inherited power. Uh, these these men were entirely dependent on the king's favor and they showed great, well, merit, but also loyalty. And he could build up uh, a system of control over his people because when he inherited the crown of England, people didn't, a lot of the senior aristocracy didn't take him at all seriously. Um, there's one particularly sinister character who I, I dwell on probably far too much, but he's called Robert de Balaam. Um, and and where, where he's so dangerous is he's, he doesn't believe in God. Now, this is very unusual at this time, but it does mean your conscience isn't gonna trouble you over much if you behave appallingly. And my goodness, he does. I mean, there's, there's a time when um, monks come and berate him for not taking Lent seriously enough. And he asks them to remind him what Lent is all about. And they say, well, part of it is not eating as much. And so he starves to, to sort of put, put a, two fingers up to the church. He starves 300 prisoners in his dungeons to, to show them that he knows how to deprive people of food. 
Uh, and then even to the, the, the totally barbaric, um, he lost his temper with uh, a godson and, and ripped his eyeballs out with his thumbs. I mean, this is a demonic figure. Uh, but these people did not accept Henry I's rule. And, um, and, and Henry, first of all, knocked them on the head, got rid of them. And uh, secondly, had a, a totally separate parallel system of government that he could rely upon. Now, he'd obviously taken advantage. He was an able, more than able, medieval king. But he had one problem that he couldn't really have control over. Uh, he had 22 illegitimate children, I think. Uh, yes. But only one legitimate male heir, who was William Etheling. Uh, and that was a major problem for a medieval dynasty. The most important thing for a medieval dynasty to do is to perpetuate itself. And you do that through heirs. And I get the impression from your book that Henry was almost completely obsessed in a way by William. All his dreams were encaptured in this one individual, this one young individual. I think that's absolutely right. He, he uh, this is not a given. He adored his son too. You know, quite often the uh, kings at this time would see them as a, 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 a sort of convenient figure in the distance, uh, but not much paternal love as we would recognize today. And on top of that, he all his hopes were vested in this one son. It's interesting, he, he, his first marriage was to uh, a rather exceptional um, princess of, of Scotland, Matilda of Scotland, who was this great figure in her own right. And she was quite saintly. And it seems as though when she had had a daughter and a son, um, she slightly shut up shop on the, on the breeding front, but it did leave him vulnerable. And although he had all these uh, illegitimate uh, sons, they were actually irrelevant in terms of dynasty because from the 1070s, the church had been re-establishing its power in this part of Europe, uh, England and Normandy, among others. And um, what a, a part of the thing they were insisting on was that illegitimacy uh, ruled out children from being treated as heirs. And even the royal families had to obey this at this time. So, you know, you have William the Conqueror was illegitimate, that was fine. It, it, it led to a few problems from other claimants, but it didn't rule him out. But, you know, a generation or so later, uh, the, these actually some of them very able uh, uh, natural sons were, were not ever going to be king. And we see Henry I bringing his uh, William Aethling uh, into the realm of governance by having him as a boy accompany him, uh, witnessing charters uh, from a young age. Uh, being in battle with him uh, when he's fighting against Louis VI of France, his great enemy. Um, and, and the point of the contest with uh, Louis VI of France is about the legitimacy of uh, William, I think, as the future Duke of Normandy. And so really what happens is between 1116 and 1119, there's a very serious war in France and Normandy uh, between Henry and his allies, a lot of mercenaries, he was very wealthy, he could bring in allies against the uh, Angevins, the, 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 the Count of Anjou and, and various other allies of Louis. And it reaches a climax in uh, the summer of 1119 at the Battle of Bremoule, when Louis is completely trounced and has to, despite some, you know, there's a little bit of quibbling and he, he seeks help from the Pope, but it's over. Uh, at this point, it's over, and William Aisling is 
recognized as both future King of England and Duke of Normandy. And at that point, at the end of 1119 into 1120, I think that's the happiest point of Henry's time as king because he's finally done it. He's established his dynasty as long as nothing happens to his one heir. And there is the rub because yes. something terrible does happen when members of the aristocracy, knights, parts of Henry's train and uh, William head to the uh, Normandy port of Barfleur and mm. head to England. And it's a dramatic, tragic and utterly changes the fortunes of that dynasty. Yes, it's extraordinary, really. So when they arrive at Barfleur, Barfleur was the point to go back from Normandy to England. It was a uh, it's right up in the, it's sort of to the east of Cherbourg, uh, but it was the harbour then. Uh, nowadays, it's a pretty French uh, fishing village because it's silted up, but it was a bustling harbour. And when Henry arrives there, uh, a man steps forward who has the finest ship in the harbour called the White Ship. And he says to the king, he says, well, it was my father's great honour to be captain of your flagship in 1066 when he went to invade England, when he went to invade England. And it would be my honour uh, to take you back now in triumph to England. Uh, Henry's not one for flattery or for changing plans, and he sticks with his arrangements with his normal ship. But he does see how beautiful and impressive the white ship is. Now, the white ship we know was white. I don't know whether it was painted or whether, uh, in some way, we know it was white because it's referred to as that by eyewitnesses. And it has 50 oarsmen who are very experienced and powerful. It's an impressive vessel. And Henry, realizing that he's slightly crushed the hopes of the captain, uh, says, well, you, but please take my son and two of my illegitimate other children, my nephew, my niece. As you say, great men and women. Uh, there's 18 women who get on board who are of the, the rank of countess or above. And yes, the working parts of his twin realms, um, the, 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 we, with the meritocracy, the, the, the ranks of the middle classes, as we would see it, who've been raised to power, they're all on it. And whereas the king soberly disappears into the channel uh, early evening on the 25th of November, uh, 1120, um, the boy, William Aithling, is, you know, he's 17 and he's surrounded by hangers-on and he and his friends get stuck into an enormous quantity of wine. And then ill-advisedly uh, persuade the crew to join in. And yeah, it's quite clear that it's a, it's a complete mess. By the time they leave, everyone's um, uh, not really in control of their senses. And the cry goes up as they, as they put to sea that they must try and overtake the king's vessel, which left several hours before. So you can picture the oarsmen really bending their backs and the captain urging them on. And then the captain makes a very serious error on top of that which is he drops the sail. You don't normally, you wouldn't have dropped the sail until you were clear of all possible uh, obstructions. And, you know, Barfleur was a popular port because it had a, a decent draft in it and it was a good shipbuilding area, very protected from the elements. But, you know, that part of uh, Northern Normandy is a rocky coast. And just before midnight, they go at quite a pace into the Key Berf Rock, which is still there today and the white ship is staved in on one side. And I, I'm afraid I think panic really did set in. Uh, the atmosphere went from one of wild abandon to complete terror. And you have to remember at this time, you know, the medieval mind knew very little about what lurked in the ocean or in the sea. 
And so if you look at maps from the time, of course, we see these terrible monsters. People didn't know how to swim. It wasn't a pastime that was uh, at all, actually. I mean, the only people I can find who can swim are people connected with uh, harbors, uh, such as men who might have to dive for a snagged net, but it wasn't anyone else. And they started to tip into the channel on a very, very cold night and uh, yeah, thrashing around for their lives. But the one, what we do know is that because there was one eyewitness to survive this disaster, and I rather like the fact that he's the lowliest uh, on board of the passengers. Uh, he's a butcher from Rouen called Barreau, and he scrambles onto a bit of broken mast. And I think he survives because of what he's wearing, whereas, whereas the aristocracy on board are wearing fine silks and, and furs. He's wearing the offcuts of his trade, a sort of goatskin jerkin. And once he's out of the water and begins to dry out a little bit, um, that, that woolen effect is, is, it keeps him alive. And he sees the most extraordinary things. He sees the young Prince William being rowed off to safety uh, in, a, in the little lifeboat that was on the white ship by his bodyguards. They, they're so keen to get away, they leave the royal treasure chest behind. It's literally just save the prince is all they have to do. And then according to Perrault, uh, he, uh, the prince is getting away to safety when he hears this piercing cry for help from his half-sister, one of Henry I's natural daughters, and she is Countess Margaret of Perche, and she screams A for help and B insults, you know, how dare you leave me here to die? And so William orders his crew to turn around the lifeboat and they go back towards her, but of course all these people are thrashing around in the water, dying, and those that can grab hold of the lifeboat and uh, in, in their effort to get on it, they pull it down and the prince drowns with them. And the next morning, um, Barreau is the sole survivor. He's found by a fisherman and he has this appalling tale to tell and nobody wants to tell the utterly terrifying Henry I this awful news. And there's a person who's not on that ship, who doesn't get on that ship, through illness, possibly through excess, through an illness yes. caused by excess. And that's Stephen of Bois. And yes. the consequences of him not getting onto that ship, combined with the tragedy of the ship sinking, has immense consequences. Yes, yeah, so Stephen of Blois is, the, is one of the sons of the Conqueror's uh, youngest daughters, Adela of Blois, who's this rather interesting figure in her own right. Stephen, less imposing, he, he's a, a sort of cheery army officer type. Um, but he, yes, he gets off. He's the most significant person not to get on that ship who did set foot on it. And then 15 years later, you know, you have 15 years of Henry I desperately trying to produce another heir. By this stage, uh, at the sinking of the white ship, he's actually a widower. Within two months, he marries this beautiful young girl from the lowlands. Um, Adelisa of Louvain, who's a great beauty. She's known as the Fair Maiden of Brabant. Um, but anyway, for whatever reason, whether it's depression or impotence or whatever it is on behalf of the king, there is no future heir during the rest of his life. And this leaves him, uh, Henry, desperately looking for some way ahead to preserving his dynasty. And he tries to bring in his only other legitimate child, uh, Matilda, who is uh, soon a widow herself. She's married Henry V, the equivalent of the Holy Roman Emperor. And he basically makes his barons and bishops swear to observe her as his successor. 
And they do this in England, in Northampton, they do it in Normandy, uh, but it doesn't work, you know, when it comes to it, when the king dies, famously dies of a surfeit of lampreys, um, having supposedly eaten rather too much of a rich and utterly disgusting looking uh, water animal. Um, he dies without any male heir, and he's assuming on his deathbed that Matilda will succeed him. But Stephen, who uh, was not keen to cross the channel in 1120 when he was not feeling well, races across and seizes the crown. And it's quite interesting, this period, you know, if you possess the, the if you've got to be crowned first, very hard to topple you because the medieval mind believed you had changed from being an ordinary human being into someone blessed by God. And so Stephen stole a march on her. There's about three years where it sort of didn't seem to matter too much. There were people who supported Matilda, but most people have fallen in with Stephen. But he turned out to be a pretty hopeless king, a uh, bit weak, uh, very extravagant, not many plans. Uh, and, and then when Matilda arrives in 1138 to say uh, that she wanted to claim her birthright, uh, that, that results in an absolutely terrible civil war, uh, which the Victorians would later call the anarchy. Very good description of it because it was utter carnage and chaos. And it was said of it, of course, that um, that was when Christ and his saints slept, which is such a vivid phrase, I think. Isn't it beautiful, that? Wonderful. And everyone, there, there was just no, there was no control. And people look back to the halcyon days of Henry I when, you know, obviously it's, it's rose-tinted spectacles, but they people said, you know, a young maiden with a purse full of gold could walk from one end of the uh, kingdom to the other unmolested. Well, I don't think she could have got outside her door during the anarchy without being raped and, 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 and despoiled. So, you know, it was carnage. And actually, by the end of that uh, two decades of, of, of terrible civil war, pretty much everyone was up for a compromise. There had to be a way forward. It didn't matter whether you were a churchman or a, a, a baron. This wasn't working for anyone. It was just too much of a breakdown of order. And we end up with Henry II. We do end up with Henry II, and it's so interesting. So Henry II is the eldest son of Matilda, and the great compromise that is brought about by pressure from all parts, really, uh, because this, the civil was settled into a stalemate, is that Stephen will be allowed unmolested to see out his days on the throne, but none of his descendants can take it on after him. Meanwhile, um, Matilda, who's by this stage retired to a nunnery, uh, her, her son, Henry II, can take over the kingdom. And he's greeted with huge excitement, mainly because it's the end of chaos, but also because he has so much about him. He's a man of incredible energy and drive. Um, although, although touched with the famous Plantagenet bad temper, my favorite story about him is he was very, very jealous of anyone paying compliments to people that were his rivals. And when somebody made the mistake while he was in his bedchamber of complimenting the King of Scotland, Henry II started eating his mattress, uh, which shows a, a, a lively uh, temper at best. But people did think the Plantagenets were very strange. There was this sort of theory at the time that they were descended from the devil's daughter because of their temper. But he was the compromise candidate and, and actually turned out to be an incredibly strong one. And that's another story. So um, yes. uh, thank you, Charles. That's absolutely fascinating, tragic story that really should be better known and, and now can be. Um, oh, well, thank you, Paul. It is sad, you know, these great periods of history that are lost to 
generations because they're just not taught anymore. And, and of course, I'm not here to teach anymore, but it's nice to resurrect a story that, as you say, is sort of wrongly forgotten, really, because it was so seismic. You know, we get the Plantagenets for over 300 years because of a shipwreck in Normandy. No, it's an extraordinary story. And you can read more about it in the December issue of History Today, as well as in Charles's, Charles Spencer's book, The White Ship, Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry the First Dream. So thank you, Charles. Thank you very much. Very good to see you. And to you, Paul. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 